Hey guys, this is And The Writer Is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of writers and artists over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life and the industry, politics, composition, whatever. If you ask me, songwriters are some of the most worldly and intelligent people I've ever come across. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. Now, I'm co-producing this with my friend Joe London, who was nominated for a Grammy earlier this year for Best Country Song. He makes us sound like angels. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, go to Spotify and look up our playlist, And The Writer Is, or go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today we have a very special and somewhat different episode of And The Writer Is. A few months ago, I moderated a panel for the Songwriter Hall of Fame titled The Art of Collaboration, Songwriters and Music Publishers Making Music and History Together. If you're not familiar with the Songwriters Hall of Fame, they're an organization dedicated to shining a spotlight on the accomplishments of songwriters who provided us with the words and music that formed the soundtrack of our lives. Each year, they induct a slate of songwriters voted on by their membership in recognition of that year's most important works and accomplishments. Being inducted to the Songwriter Hall of Fame is truly an honor. Out of the thousands of successful songwriters of our era, there are currently only 400 that have been inducted. The Hall of Fame not only celebrates these established songwriters, but is also devoted to the development of new songwriting talent through workshops, showcases, and scholarships. If you're a songwriter or music industry professional, you should definitely join the Songwriters Hall of Fame. They sponsor great year-round workshops, showcases, scholarships, and other initiatives like this special event that we recorded for this program. Go to songhall.org to learn more and sign up to join. Now let me set the scene for you. On an evening last October to a packed house in the Clive Davis Theater at the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles, a panel consisting of three of today's illustrious and award-winning songwriters and their respective publishers shared stories about their personal and professional relationships. That included Jack Antonoff and his publisher, Jen Canopel. That included Dan Wilson and his publisher, Kenny McPherson. And Bonnie McKee and her publisher, Scott Cutler. Finally... I want to thank the Songwriter Hall of Fame president and CEO, Linda Moran, and Hall Committee members Barbara Kane, Mary Jo Manella, Casey Robison, Kathy Spanberger, Rebecca Alperin, Tom DeSavia, and Donna Kassain for putting this very special event together. So without further ado, recorded live from the Songwriters Hall of Fame, here is And The Writer Is. Welcome to the Art of Collaboration panel. 
It's presented by the Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Grammy Museum. And I am your host, Ross Golan, from the podcast. And the writer is... Our first writer and frontman has crafted number one songs for both as an artist and a writer. In 1998, his band topped the modern rock chart. In 2007, he won a Grammy for Song of the Year. And in 2012, as a producer, he won a Grammy for Album of the Year. He's the writer that, record, that record labels go to when they need that timeless song. From Minneapolis, Minnesota, this Harvard graduate is not just a musician, he's the industry's most outstanding calligrapher. Is that true? And that's true. Really? And the writer is one of my favorite humans, Dan Wilson. Yeah. Next to Dan is his publisher who has been his publisher since 1994. In that time, the two have moved from Warner Chapel, where they shared Grammy-nominated closing time by Dan's band, Semisonic, then to Chrysalis Music, where they shared Grammy winners Not Ready to Make Nice uh, by the Dixie Chicks and Adele's number one record, Someone Like You. And most recently, they've moved to, uh, to his company with that he co-founded Big Deal Music. This man left Scotland before Brexit was cool. And the publisher is one of the industry's nicest, Kenny McPherson. Our second writer has not only developed her own artist career, but has been instrumental in the development of many others' artist careers. She's written 10 number one songs and has received a Grammy nomination for Song of the Year. She's written with the titans in the music industry because her lyrics are unmatched. From the Pacific Northwest, this writer's ambition is enviable and undeniable. And the writer is the only person I've ever written a song with in the Nashville's Delta Lounge, Bonnie McKee. Yeah. Now, the man next to her has been uh, next to her since the beginning. Uh, he created Pulse Recording in 2007 and signed Bonnie shortly after. They've enjoyed some of the biggest songs ever on Top 40 Radio, including California Girls, Teenage Dream, Last Friday Night, Part of Me, Wide Awake, Roar, and Dynamite. Now, uh, he's, he's different than most publishers because he was a hit writer first. He's also Grammy-nominated and wrote Natalie Imbruglia's Torn, which was number one for 14 weeks. If you ever need a straight answer, this guy will tell you how it is. Awesome. Wow. And the publisher is Scott Cutler. Yeah. Our third writer is a brand. As a front man, he scored a number one song on alternative radio. As a lead guitarist and co-writer, he crafted one of the iconic albums of the last 10 years. And as a writer-producer, he's won Grammy Awards and received two Golden Globe nominations. From New Jersey, this entrepreneur is philanthropic, socially conscious, and most importantly, funny. I mean, he hosts a telethon. That's true. And the writer is someone who still owes me the fun CD, my friend Jack Antonoff. His publisher has followed him since his first notable band, Steel Train. 
She was a fan of fun since Aim and Ignite, the album before the one Jack owes me. Since Jack and her have been together, they've celebrated Grammys with Jack as an artist, but also have had hits like Brave for Sarah Bareilles and Out of the Woods for Taylor Swift. If the courting phase of a publisher-writer relationship is an indication of how their working relationship will be, then this publisher proves she'll do anything for her writers. And the publisher is Jen Knopfel. And that's it. I'm just kidding. Okay, no, all right, so um, just to clarify, the first time I wrote with Jack was in a small room at Warner Chapel, uh, right after Glee's version of We Are Young, and before the Chevy spot in the Super Bowl of the band doing it. So I hadn't heard the band's version yet. Um, so my question is, as a publisher and a writer, how does a song go from the studio to all of a sudden Glee and Chevy before it's ever really been released on an album. How did how did that happen? Uh, that that happened because um, I guess I guess uh, John Janik, who who was A and R in the record, uh, just played it for. Um, I, well, I, I guess the that happens specifically. It's, it's not a good story. He just played it for someone. But the the interesting story, which is what you're getting at, is how does it happen? Which is someone hears a song and they think, oh, this would work for this. Because I think that people uh, who in in film and television uh, know uh, from the industry who just like fires out a million songs and who actually thinks and is like this could work. And so he heard that song and and he wasn't like just like sending everything to Glee. He was like, oh, this actually sounds like a you sure. know the so melody is very you know would work for Glee and lots of people harmonizing with it, et cetera. So it was, and I think that what you're getting at is is how you get those results and it's when things are specific and pointed. This would work for this, you know. Sometimes you might hear a song that would be great in this type of movie, or if someone's going to make another movie like Drive, right? There's music for that. There's music for Fast and the Furious. There's music for cartoons. So, so you're just thinking about it. He thought about that. He was like, "This is a good idea." When when Glee happened, well, actually, the untold story about that song okay. is that Kanye and Jay Z had it. What? No, no one knows that. It never got discussed. Um, I, I, but not, go back to like when it was written. Okay, so, so, like, so where so are you we, when you're writing this? So fun was so to bring Jen into it. Fun was like an indie band that you know a couple hundred people would come see, and so we thought we were doing great and and big publishers. I thought you were doing great. Yeah, totally. But yeah. but we were not getting sync selling it was records. Just me, though. There was no money involved. To you, was that successful? Like Huge. I mean, have you you were were you had it gone on that path? Oh yeah, I thought Wilco was the biggest totally band successful. in the world. Yeah, I thought Spoon was the biggest band in the world, and I thought anything on the radio was so. I thought I was too old by the time uh, bef- before musically I, or just in general. I, I thought I had this um, antiquated view of the radio that it was for like nineteen-year-old goys. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, I'm the first. Yeah. I was the first Jew to be on any radio. <laughs> Definitely the first Jew with an alternative number one. Um, the first Jew to be on the stage. <laughs> You're the second. <laughs> right. So, so th- that's actually just a really quick, interesting story. So the band was totally un- unacquainted with anything mainstream. We all were. Uh, Jeff Basker was producing the record. We 
got his information because we love Dark Fantasy, the Kanye record. He agreed to do it for very little money. He took the demo of We Are Young. He played it for Kanye, who was making Watch the Throne at the time. We didn't know any famous people. We didn't have anything to do with this. Kanye said, this is great. I'm going to put it on Watch the Throne. And then we were like, oh, my God, this is crazy. Wow. And then we Would had it this... have said, like, featuring fun? Or... We don't know. Yeah, it, it didn't matter. I still actually yeah. have never heard it. Oh, wow. The only thing I've ever heard about it yeah. is someone told me who heard it, like somewhere, somewhere at Rock Nation said that Jay-Z said, I'm the king of Coachella in his verse. I don't know you if it's should, true. You should, you should get it and you should leak that. I would love to. I mean, I don't know if I wouldn't do that, but, but so we thought. You should, oh. you should get it and then you should um, put it out legally. But it, it's a good idea. It kind of is so crazy, that part of the story. Yeah, no because literally, that. like, they almost gave it away. Well, we we thought, were, well, when, the, when, because I heard Jay-Z said it was too pop last yes, minute. exactly. Because it was, it was on Watch Throne and they took it off. And we were devastated. We were like, that, that's, over. our career is over. And it actually ended up being the best thing, but it never had a flirtation with mainstream. So the, the truth before the Glee thing was, and what can happen a lot of times at labels and publishers is someone will notice a song, like a famous artist, and then everyone will notice a song. I'm having a situation like that right now. You know how it is. Like, you're like, this song's amazing, and no one gives a shit. And then like, some big artist is like, this song's amazing, and then... Everyone else cares. So, so um, John Janik and Atlantic, they always believed in the song, but that was a big moment for other people. Like, hey, Kanye and Jay-Z like it. You should put it on Glee. I mean, so it goes on Glee, and it's a, maybe a number one song on Billboard, wasn't it? As a, or Glee, or was it just number one? The Glee version, was number was, one on the iTunes Glee version went number one on iTunes. Before, before the fun version, right? Yes. So yes. Did, that, did that scare you, or did that uh, encourage you as an artist to know that the song's already a hit, or was it... It was, I mean, all ex- it was all icing on the cake. None of it was even... I was so uninvolved in the world that a lot of us live in now where we think about if songs are going to be hits, we think about if they'll stay hits, if they'll connect. It was so pure. We just couldn't believe any of it was happening. So when you were done with the song, it, it, you'd, at that point, the label, the label was a part of it once you were finished with We Are Young, correct? I didn't think the song was a hit because I thought the radio was dumber than it actually is. It's yeah. not that dumb. Right, of course. The radio's... Can, that's part of what all of us on stage have to do is not believe people in the radio are dumb. When I was not involved with it, I, I just brushed it off like that's where crap goes, and that's not true. So I thought it was a smart song, and I was like, it'll never work. And so actually that ha- being my first uh, break or whatever, it was a wonderful lesson because it's, it's a weird song in yeah. many ways. It's great, though. I like that song. Bonnie. Yes. You've had, uh, you've had a lot of songs in the Super Bowl. Um, you're sort of responsible for uh, for Left Shark. Um, so I guess um, you know my my question is: when you see a song being performed at the Super Bowl, and and you have, I mean, it's the halftime, and you have multiple songs being played. Are you watching and are you thinking ah, I should have picked that other lyric, or are you sitting there actually thinking? The, about the composition at all or and vice versa when you're creating it are you thinking that when i write the words roar that katie's going to be wearing like riding a paper mache horse in, in you know i believe it was a lion but uh, or it's a lion yeah. i don't know i guess <laughs> it would make sense because it's roar and not nay <laughs> right <laughs> they don't teach you that at usc apparently <laughs> I graduated early, but I never tell people my GPA. You know, it's that thing. <laughs> anyway, so no, seriously though, when you're watching your songs on, uh, you know, in the Super Bowl, are you watching it though, and, and actually thinking 
of the process and how you wrote it. Yeah, I do. Every time I hear the songs that um, that we wrote, I, most of my hits have been with Katy Perry. We're, um, we're a great team. So it's not like I did it all myself. She's incredible uh, in her own right. Um, but yeah, there were things that we fought over. We fought like sisters and sometimes we yelled at each other and sometimes we cried and sometimes we wanted to punch each other. But, um, but we're a great team and we challenge each other. And so there were moments where I let her win or she let me win. And every time I hear the song, I think about those moments. Um, and the things that I didn't like that made it where I was like, Oh, I wish we had changed this or whatever, uh, become validated when it's a hit where I'm like, she was right. Obviously she was right. Bonnie's Bonnie's relentless though about lyrics. And I've watched her do this for years. Every line is worked over, thought about, rewritten, studied, you know. It's exhausting. It is exhausting. <laughs> I mean, I was going was to ask for you, too. Is it um, when, you know, at being a writer who turned publisher, yeah. Oh, yeah. Does it, you know, when you're, uh, when she, <laughs> yeah, who you, um, when, when you hear a song that she sends you, are you, do you think of it compositionally or do you think of it I, as this is a song that my writer sent me? I, is it is it okay? No, can, you, I think, can you listen to it as a fan? Yeah, I think I've, I'm a fan at this point. I think the composition brain left me at one point, and I just listen. But with Bonnie in particular, Bonnie was the first person we signed to Pulse, so she was the first time I ever switched my role. Sure. And um, she came in with a ballad she wrote herself that was expansive and epic, and I didn't know this. When was that? This was 2008 or whatever. Was that after your, your first record deal? Yeah, then? yeah. That was after, okay. So the Katy Perry couplet, every line, perfect. That wasn't, I had no idea that was coming. Sure. I, I was, didn't know how to do that yet. No. I, was, I taught her how to do it. Yeah, he taught right, me everything I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, every publisher. No, no, no. <laughs> Kidding, guys. Yeah, yeah. Y'all are cool. Go ahead. Yeah, I I didn't know how to do that yet. I was a, I was just a baby songwriter, just a baby when Scott discovered me. And um, thank you for taking a chance on uh, me, by the way, because I I had a failed record deal under my belt, and I wrote all those songs. They were hundred percenters, so I didn't know how to collaborate. I was just it's just a lot of ego. Where it's just I wanted to say that I wrote everything myself, but now I can't even fathom writing something by myself. I it, frightens me because I don't trust myself. I feel like I need another brain in the room to bounce off of and tell me if I'm on the right track. Um, so broken. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and so, uh, and I'm so, so grateful. Actually, I met you back when I made my first album and, uh, you, you introduced yourself. He introduced himself to me backstage. Like I didn't know who he was, but back in the day before, when I made my first album, I was unpublished. Because I was like, well, I write everything myself, and I want to own everything myself, and I don't need a publisher and whatever. And I so wish that I had signed a publishing deal back then because you were coming around, and you were such a big fan, and you were so cool to me. And I just was like, oh, publishing, like who's going to – I just should keep everything for myself. But publishers are your friends. They help you. They introduce you to people. They nurture you. And um, I, if I hadn't gotten a publishing deal, I wouldn't be the songwriter I am today. I'm really grateful to have learned like, everything that I did. People have this idea like you don't sell your publishing – like Ridiculous. no one sells their publishing. No. They they make a, a decent deal where you get a partner for a period of time. Yeah. I think it must have been the Beatles, right? Where <laughs> that started that rumor, didn't they like sell? Yeah, to my us. parents. I think it was on. Beethoven. Yeah, we probably. <laughs> Actually, like, yeah, that's like people one of the who... first publishing deals ever done. You're being yeah. serious. Beethoven, yeah. Not a bit. Wow. Because uh, I'm, I'm that old that I remember. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. 
<laughs> but like my parents, when I they, who knew nothing about the music industry, like whatever you do, don't sell your publishing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like this concept where it's like, or the, okay, then then don't give away a very small piece for a lot of help, mm-hmm. and just money enjoy, support, yeah, money support all of it. Um, no one really sells their publishing. I say that every day. But yeah, like have you ever like, bought someone's entire publishing? Who's I, alive? I, no, and I definitely didn't do that with you. We had we have a. Pretty no, I sold all. I would have done. Yeah. He <laughs> <laughs> sold it for. But I think that's that's a real thing that you know. It, it, I, I, as a student at, at USC, one of the things they they teach you the value of of publishing. So then you you put a value to something that genuine hasn't created any revenue yet. So then you feel like like well, what am I sell? I can't sell half my publishing or all my publishing because. You don't. You're sort of taught that that has the value, but in reality, you know, none of the writers are on this stage without their publishers, and their publishers really had a lot to do with, which we'll get to. Well, I must say that I, I wasn't able to sign Bonnie back when she had her first record deal, but my wife did get to take the most beautiful pictures of her uh, as an artist, which I get to see still on a monthly Aww. basis uh, because they're in my wife's portfolio and uh, you you photograph beautifully. Aww. So I, 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 I didn't get to sign your publishing. I'm delighted that Scott did, but uh, I still get to look at you and go, why the fuck that? <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't know yet how valuable that would be. <laughs> Kenny, when um, being that uh, unlike Scott, you don't you don't write music. Um, how did you know in 1994 when you meet, you know, Dan, who's in a band in the Midwest? How do you know that that guy? I mean, you you you're in Warner Chapel, probably in where were you in London or you were in New York? So, how did you take? Why did you take a risk on this guy from the Midwest? You know what? What was it that he was showing you? Well, I I had sort of just moved to New York and started my first sort of corporate publishing job with Warner Chapel. I, I was on the road for many years and in management, and uh, well, it, part of a management company started a publishing company. And I, the band I worked with was Supertramp, and um, we had a deal with A&M Records, and I heard about Dan when he and his brother Matt had tripped Shakespeare. And uh, so I was aware of Dan then and thought they were, I mean, Trip Shakespeare was a good name, you know. I right. mean, it was trippy, and, and then he's a Harvard man. And as I went to the University of Glasgow Side Streets, I thought I might learn something from meeting a Harvard man. And I have. I have. Uh, But, you know, I just, uh, I, I, you know, because I come from management and really I'm a failed I'm a failed musician. Uh, I tried and it just wasn't in my gene that I was better at organizing the gigs than singing them. And learned that very quickly. Uh, so I've always just loved the sort of uh, the mystery of songwriting. I'm fascinated by how songwriters create, and I love the fact that there's no creative rule book, and it just turns me on, and it still turns me on. I mean, uh, so I just with Dan, I I heard Semisonics demos. I I worked with a gentleman, John Tita, who I'd hired to, who was a musician and, and spoke that language better than me. And I've actually 
been successful partially because I've had good taste in, I think, in people that work with me, be it John Tita, David Stamm, Casey Robeson. I mean, who just are musicians, have a, a feel, a sensitivity. And part of my job is to help guide them through the management of that process and, and how that works. And uh, But I'm a fan. So when I heard Semisonic's demos and then when they were making the record, it, it just turned me on. You know, there was something very Beatlesque, which obviously growing up with the Beatles I loved. And But I just loved Dan's voice, his guitar playing, his lyrical sense. It just, I wanted to go see it. I wanted, I wanted I, you know, it just was. And then I met him and uh, it's been a 22-year relationship where we've followed each other around and stuck together. And I think that's probably the best thing that you can have as a, a collaboration between an artist and, you know, an, a, I, I would say we are creative people, obviously, but it's been a journey for both of us and it's stimulating and still vibrant and exciting and we've become personal friends and our families are friends and it's just, it's a joy. Did so had you heard Closing Time in those demos? No, that was no Closing Time hadn't been written in 1994. Uh, it may have been written in Dan's that brain, was, that but was he in. never he never he never said that. When <laughs> when, when was it written? 1997 or 96? Early uh, early 97 or late 96. So when you're writing that and I know the backstory, but if you could share the backstory of closing time a little bit, why, why did you write closing time? Uh, for several reasons. At the same time, uh, there was a song on uh, Semisonic's first album called "If I Run," which I thought was an amazing song, and people didn't really notice it. And I asked a friend of mine, uh, who was a smart guy, "What uh, what could I do with that? Like just my disappointment that no one noticed this great song." And he said, "Just write it again." Yeah, that's really I was funny. like, okay, that's cool. So that's thing one. Uh, second thing was um, I was had been living in bars for like seven years, essentially because Trip Shakespeare had been on the road for, you know, 100 to 200 nights a year for all that time. And so closing time was like the dominant metaphor of my life at that point. And then my wife and I were expecting a child, and because I didn't want to bum my band out with a song that was obviously about a kid being born, <laughs> which would have bummed them out a lot because they were <laughs> rock musicians and they don't want you sentimentally singing about having a baby, I, I hid the story of being born in the metaphor of being kicked out of a bar. Swear to God. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, and then it ends up And being, I rewrote my other song, If I Run, and blah, blah. And that ends up being played in every bar. Is, I mean, there's, there's yeah. one, it's, <laughs> it's one thing when you write a, meta, a song that's a metaphor and then it actually becomes the song that people play at the end of the my, night is pretty nuts. My observation is that it's that, I mean, Jack is right about not underestimating people's intelligence, but when people group, group together in large groups, they don't understand metaphors. Once there's a thousand people, that that group, that each individual might understand a metaphor over coffee. Sure. But those thousand people as a group do not understand a metaphor, so it's all very literal. I, I guess speaking of literal, you know, um, and it's also a political year, so this is kind of interesting for this song, um, but not ready this to... This is an be- awesome lead-in, by the way. Whatever you're about to do yeah, is super I'm, good. I'm the best. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, in it, 
in a political year like this, you know, you, um, Not Ready to Make Nice, which came out in 2007, wins Song of the Year, Record of the Year, Duo of the Year, I don't know, Everything of the Year. Yeah. And um, it's a song, that, you know, for those of you guys who don't know it, um, it was the lead singer, um, Natalie Maine from uh, Dixie Chicks. She, she said in a concert, we're ashamed that the president of the United States is from Texas. And uh, all country radio stations banned that band. So they became the biggest band in the world. They were the biggest band in country, and then they were just off radio overnight because they said something that's true. Um, <laughs> so when she approached you with this concept, is that how that happened? I mean, how does somebody say to you, hey, I want to go in and write the song that says fuck you to radio, which is really hard to do. You know, it's hard to go and it's when... It's hard when we talk about we grew up all thinking oh radios where those those songs go and then once you live in the world you realize how hard it is to get a song on radio how hard it is to get a song to react on radio and then to go to all the radio programmers and say uh, this isn't an apology is a really hard song or is it, or is it an apology no um, well uh when I got together with the Dixie Chicks, it was kind of a blind date that Rick Rubin, their producer, put together. He and I were working on a couple things, and he introduced me to the Chicks. And um, obviously I'd known a lot about their political travails at that time. Um, but when I got together with them, they played me a bunch of their songs, and I think sometimes we are not super objective about our own work. And They played me several of their songs that obliquely mentioned their troubles with the Bush administration. And um, they said, when, and, and uh, it was fun for me to just hear their works in progress. And then they, you know, afterwards they said, we don't, we don't really want to like delve into it anymore in our songs because we've gone into it too much already. And I said, no, no actually, none of the, no one's going to notice these, the references to their political struggle. Uh, in, they were just a little too subtle for people to really notice. And I, kind of told them that we, we needed to write something that was like re- really blatant. And, and, then, and then after some discussion with them, which was really pretty fruitful and which is kind of told in that movie, maybe at length, I, I won't go into that, but the next morning I had a lot of espresso. <laughs> and uh, but he still has a lot of espresso in I the still morning. drink a lot this of espresso. not like special to that. <laughs> so, and then I thought of this phrase, not ready to make nice, which is... Um, something that my Midwestern, my prairie family might say. So I don't think of it as really a particularly country thing to say. But, that, but I Envisioning sang Envisioning your prairie family is awesome. My prairie family. <laughs> like little prairie yeah. dogs, yeah. You know, well, uh, you know, Ross, funny that story too. Uh, you know, I'd be obviously working with Dan for a long time then and, and I was friends with the Dixie Chicks manager, Simon. And for three years before Dan got to uh, get to go this year, I'd been going to Simon for three years. This is the frustration I'm sure Jen and Scott relate to. For three years, I've been telling him, you have to get the Dixie Chicks to meet Dan Wilson and write with Dan Wilson. You have to, I mean, like a broken record. And it was like, yeah, yeah, Kenny, right? Yeah, what's he doing? What's he doing? What's, what, what? And I go, and then, of course, Dan's working with Rick. Rick tells the Chicks, oh, you got to meet Dan Wilson. Overnight it happens. And I go to Simon and say, 
For the radio listening, you flipped it. You said it's a podcast, so I I was trying to bleep myself. I didn't know if it was HBO. (laughs) Fuck you, Simon. Sometimes that sometimes that approach of the publisher, like banging on doors, actually works. I mean, you made like when 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 I wrote with uh, Dirk Bentley for the first time. That was you banging on doors, and and that was a. I mean, it wasn't a crazy stretch, but it was certainly. Uh, well, not the, the first thing one, we so thought. I was delighted. Yeah, I was did um, did it scare you when that song came out and there was there was a lot of controversy attached to that song? And my my question is, did it scare you? Because um, one of the things I wanted to talk about next is sort of a big part of being a songwriter is branding you as as a songwriter. You know, the way we um, people tend to come to us for certain types of songs or certain types of projects, and so. When you have a writer that comes out with a song that's controversial, it's amazing. Um, was there a fear that people like, I guess Dirk Bentley is the kind of guy that would want to write with that writer. But did it, did it scare you at all that the brand of, of Dan would change in any way? No, not at all. I mean, maybe there's certain other artists, writers, I don't know, the Dixie Chicks' biggest fan, Toby Keith, he might not want to get together with Dan, but I, I, I wouldn't discount it. Um, no, I, I think that's the uh, one of the fascinating things, and I think songwriters do need to challenge and do need to protest and do need to bring awareness to situations. And I think we cannot live in fear, and we should be courageous and stand next to them. Yeah. And, uh, Did kind of chill out my visits to... Nashville for yeah for like a five years yeah I mean yeah, it actually it, it made did. people kind of not yeah in country not want to write with me yeah wow. it did it did for and Good my for attitude to them was fuck you oh. yeah. I mean no, because awesome. I mean it's, I mean, it's gonna please, it's gonna turn around you know there was plenty yeah. of other things and, and I mean it's a brilliant song they're fantastic musicians and songwriters and art and and and, and pivotal artists and and uh, you know you just got to take it on the chin and keep going. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Well, uh, so the idea of branding a writer is important. And the, the thing I want to bring up to Scott and Bonnie is, you know, a lot of your relationship has been, how do you brand Bonnie as an artist versus a writer? You know, and, and I think that that's been, I, I guess I want to know how you do that. How, how you decide to write certain things as a writer versus as, as an artist um, you know, and before you answer that, you know, I think, you know, in my opinion, as a writer, something like Teenage Dream 
is, you know, is probably the best calling card any writer could have, you know? And, and I think that really brands you as a, as a writer. And my question is, how do you differentiate yourself? And maybe you could tell the story of Teenage Dream and uh, how yeah, you put yourself well, in that. It's actually, it's hard to differentiate because I have um, a pretty specific style of writing, which Scott has called couplets, which I had never heard before. But um, I guess that is kind of what I do. Um, matching little lines, like perfectly symmetrical <laughs> little metaphors and things. Um, and uh, it's something that I've struggled with, honestly, because um, my obviously everything that I did with Katie was co-written and um, there's a lot of Katie in there. And But I... Teenage dream, though. Teenage Dream, though. Get on to it. Um, okay, Teenage Dream. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't finish high school. I was kicked out of high school in the ninth grade. And uh, I was... So I missed out on prom. And I missed out on football games. And I missed out on all of that fun shit you see in the movies. And so I always kind of had an unhealthy obsession with it. And, um, and so before I met Katie, uh, in my own work, I had a, kind of an on-running theme of teenage adolescent turmoil uh and new love um and i feel like i had been trying to write that song my whole life and um when i was put in a room with Katy perry max martin dr luke benny blanco i had the right tools to do that um and so originally we wrote that song front to back five different times five different versions of that song existed that were not teenage dream wait same title or different titles different ti- completely different lyrics like but completely same, different same melodies same the melodies were the same because max martin is the swedish genius that wrote most of the melody um and so we knew that there was something magical there and the track was right and there was magic we knew it um but we were just beating our head against, against the walls and um and we wrote the first version was like kind of had that uh the young thing where you know we were talking about eating ice cream for breakfast and you know trying to stay forever young was kind of the the underlying theme but it felt too young and then and then we did something that was like try me on that was very like dress you up in my love like some kind of stupid sex metaphor <laughs> with like shopping it was very cheap it was very it was, i'm not proud of it um and we just kept writing and writing and then and then finally we kind of had to take a break from it it was like a month straight like every day going and rewriting this fucking song and then we took a break from it for a second and i just like i remember sitting with benny blanco and he was like it's just not cool i was like i know it's got to be cooler he was like check out this thing there's this band called the teenagers and they had a song it's like some weird french band that's not even there's not even any singing it's just them talking and it was a couple of french kids talking like american valley girls they're like oh my god so like i went to the mall and like you would not believe like what she was wearing and like it was like some completely random thing and i just remember listening to it and being like yeah this is like this is my shit this is what i care about this is what inspires me and i thought about the word teenager and how much you can say with just one word like you hear the word teenager and it just paints a whole picture and it's very evocative um, and I had these syllables. I had to fill in these syllables, and um, and so I just I ended up with Teenage Dream. And then once I had the title, I was like, "This is it." I felt in my gut. I knew it was it. I drove up to Santa Barbara um, and met up with Katie and Max and everybody. And I was like, "Guys, I think I got it." And they were like, "We don't want to hear it," because we had put together like an all right chorus, 
And they were like, just work on the verses. We don't want to hear it. And I was like, no, no, I swear. So knowing that I had this ace in my pocket, I was like, all right, I'm just going to write the verses to match this title because I know it's right. So Katie and I went in and I told her and she liked it. Um, but we always had to run everything by Max and Luke. They were like the good cop, bad cop. <laughs> um, and they had to approve it. And they'd often send us back with our tail between our legs. Um, and uh, so... it was the bad cop. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> oh, boy. Sorry. Yeah, there it is. I love bits. Right. <laughs> no <Wrong>. comment. <laughs> See? That's my Donald Trump in Go ahead. Um, so anyway, no comment. Um, so I, we wrote these these verses, and then when I finally came in, and I was like, okay, listen, check it out, teenage dream. You make me feel like I'm living a teenage dream. And then Max looked at me and was like, well, why didn't you say so? I was like, oh my god. That song's incredibly you, though. I mean, Thank you. of all, it sounds so belabored, but. It was. It sounds like you writing a song in five seconds to me. Thank you. I mean, well, that's your that's song and American Girl are like siblings. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Yeah, I feel like, like American Girl was the sister song too. To yeah. You feel that way too? Me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, here's a compliment. When I was in, uh, I, I just went to a, a bachelor party with Max. No, he wasn't getting married. It was somebody else. But we were talking about songs that you know, who favorite songs that people have written. And he says that that's his favorite song that he's ever written. And oh. considering like his catalog, that's a that's oh, pretty wow. That's really amazing to hear. Max Martin is like my idol, and I still like even after working with him for years and years, and you know having all the success with him, I still am, am starstruck every time I'm in a room with yeah, him. Right. And I feel like I learn something every time I write with him. Mm-hmm. So I'm really blessed and grateful to have been able to come up under him and. And Luke, you know, yeah. I learned a lot from Luke. Sure. Like he was really, really hard on me and I'm glad. I'm yeah. really grateful for that, you know. Scott, how do you how do you um encourage the different parts of a writer like Bonnie where she's doing the artist pursuing being an artist, pursuing being a writer? At what points do you say, Hey, now you gotta go in and do that kind of song or you should do the I mean do you I mean, have well, first any... First of all, that's... I mean, can you imagine me telling her what to do? <laughs> right, I guess that's, that's fair. That's not, that's not how it <laughs> right. works. I, I, for me, it's... Um, I just try to be encouraging. Uh, um, I think it's... Writing music is a magical experience. N- nobody up here really knows exactly how the ideas come, when they come. Um, I listen to Beatles songs. They seem like they were written by God. I don't know how they could have been written... And I still look at it that way. So when I heard American Girl, I just, you know, this is it. This is the song. We got it. I mean, the only suggestion I had was shorten, like, let's shorten up the second verse, which drove her crazy because she had these couplets. I had, I had a line about she had cars couple, blowing up. She had a couple up, of good lines really and she had to, to shrink. Well, and that took line? days. There was, a, the there was a line about, it was like something about, I want to blow up a car because I can do whatever the fuck I want because yeah, it's yeah. America. <laughs> it's like right. a very American yeah, line. It was but, like right. Team America. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but I, yeah, I don't get in there. I don't have the answer. I don't break it down. I, I just uh, listen like a fan. And I think that was one of the very few suggestions I had in our whole life together of like make the second verse shorter. I don't know. Whatever sure. the fuck that means. All right. That's a note. That's a good note, right? <laughs> Speed it up. But um, yeah, and then with her artist thing versus her writing thing, it's just 
uh, I think the only thing I ever said to her was just live a creative life every day, right? Some songs, that's, the right one will come in the right day. That's all you can really do is just show up and, and show see up. what happens. And it used to be when I first started writing, I would I would come in always prepared and be like, okay, I have to have a title ready. I have to... Blah, blah, blah. Nashville, by the way. Yeah. Be prepared. Yeah. It's Nashville and it helps in the, in the community that she's talking about in Santa Barbara that those writers... You only have so many opportunities with those writers, and you know publishers' jobs. If they're good, if they're you know they're introducing you to situations, and you walk in there and you have to write the song, so and it t- helps titles to be really. Are, pre- it helps are, to have something. And I love titles. Like I'm always the first question is always like, "What's, what's it, it called?" called? Yeah, <laughs> and I wish I had come up with out of the woods. But it's that thi- oh, that's so good. That's it's that thing. It's that thing where song. when people say, uh, um, "You know, there are." All these people who have songs where the title's not in the in the chorus or the title's not, and they, they think they're being artistic by picking some random thing and say, don't. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> the first way of not getting your song cut. That's funny. That actually happened to me. I had a number one with Cheryl Cole in, in the UK, and uh, the chorus was very like straight ahead, and it was like, I don't care, and it feels so fucking good to say I don't care, whatever. And I was like, I can't call it I don't care. And so my first line of the song was "Waking Up Diagonal," and I was like, "Way better title." Big title. But yeah. but they changed it to "I Don't Care," and I was yeah. pissed. I was so mad. Yeah. I mean, think of it. If, if it was you know, I took a pill in Ibiza, number one song. If it's like sad song, it's like kill yourself. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. Um, that was really aggressive. Um, <laughs> So, anyway, so uh, you know, Jack, one of the things that I, that you have that's that's unique is that you, when I was saying in the um, the intro that you have a brand as a writer, I mean that that um, if I look at, at Brave and Out of the Woods and Better and a lot of these records, like I feel like I know you as a writer in a in a really intimate way. I think that um, I think that's really hard to do. And I guess my question is, like, how does, did, let's go, talk about Out of the Woods. When, um, how did Taylor find you? And was she, what did she, how did that come about? How does, did she find you as, as somebody who had done other songs? Did she, did she know Bleachers? Did she know Steel Train? It, it sounds a, like a Jack record with apologies to jason evigan who's in the audience who i told this uh, this story and the and the we are young story to today so like he has to hear him twice (laughs) he's a friend of the podcast he's been interviewed wherever he is (laughs) Um, we like you jason uh it was a weird one because uh you know do you know the tegan and sarah record heartthrob so there's a song called how come you don't want me which i did with them which wasn't a single uh it wasn't even really like a fan favorite it was a favorite for us. Yeah, it was a great song, in my opinion. But it, um, yeah, it was. It was just no, it wasn't a track like on a record. It, it was single or not. Like yeah. you know, because on on albums there's hit singles. Sometimes there's fan favorites. There, it wasn't. It just it was. It was one of the songs. I'm very very proud of it. It was modeled after Only You, No Mr. Blue by Yaz. Um, that was sort of the sonic DNA of it. So she heard that song, and you know, I think you'd been knocking. That door yes, we'd also. be knocking on the Taylor door. That's <laughs> um, actually to your point, like what you had talked about earlier. I think it's interesting when you talk about Jack as a brand or Jack from an art, from being an artist and how that sort of helped or hurt or whatever. 
But I think, you know, he is able to put himself in, in situations that I'm just, I'm not going to be backstage at the Grammys, you know, mingling with other artists. And I think we tried, I mean, we published Taylor and, you know, we sort of were like pretty laser focused on getting him with Taylor because we knew that it would be this amazing explosive thing. But we we didn't get very far. I mean, we, we sort of get to the right places. And Who do you contact? You don't, like, call Taylor and say, hey. No, you know, no. Should... I mean, yeah, we, we talked to Troy, who actually right. signed Taylor, who's the head of our Nashville office, who's close to her, and, you know, uh, her manager. And, you know, we and it was all very positive, you know. Sure. But, but, but what's great about someone like Taylor and someone like Jack or, is, like, they have their own ideas, and they, they're very, they, you know, they, they have them. And, and sometimes that's actually a better thing. So... So in this sense, you guys actually yeah, sort so of she, we we had met at, th- at things things and we I was you know we, we were I was you know she was aware of stuff I was doing and whatever thought it was cool we just got to know it you know you meet people at things like school or whatever it's the same right. feeling um, and so I did that Tegan and Sarah song and that was before I started Bleacher so that song was the beginning of a phase for me that lasted probably like two years which was very rooted in uh, the feeling from John Hughes movies. Yeah, um, it was rooted in this idea. Uh, Vince Clark, who actually ended up getting to work with a bunch, uh, started Depeche Mode and Yaz and Erasure. And I kind of thought, well, this is sort of like he, he he thirty years ago invented pop radio. It just sounded better then. Why did it sound better? You know, because well, he wasn't using soft synths. He was using yeah, was all, all real. The, the old stuff that you can't that's harder to use. And I thought, wow, you know, Depeche Mode was so from what I've heard, cutting edge and wild when they were out, and now that Depeche Mode ARP is every pop song. Like, how did that happen? And how do I get back to where it came from? And why is it that in the John Hughes movies, those songs, not just because for everyone are just so emotional, make you want to dance and cry. To your point about uh, uh, the metaphor and how smart people are or are not, my favorite songs, Closing Time is a perfect example, is um, ones that a million people can get drunk to and one teenager can cry to in bed. Dancing on My Own by Robin is probably the best example of all time. Oh, yeah. Every, yeah, it really is. You know, uh, Alicia Keys, Try Sleeping With a Broken Heart. Um, you know, so that's, that, that's the only barometer for me for a song. Was it me? <laughs> it was the synth. It was fucking horrible. Yeah. <laughs> I can't breathe. Um, so uh, that that's the biggest thing. How do how do both those exist at the same time? We we all any writers, publishers. I mean that that's it, right? Sure. You want both, and when it happens, those are the biggest, best, most exciting. No one's ashamed to like them. John Hughes movies, those songs. So I, I was trying to think about that. I started Bleachers, that was in that theme, and we just caught each other at a, a great moment because she heard that Tegan Sarah song. It happened to be her favorite song. She's like, "Oh, you're the guy who did that," and I was like, "Yeah." And I have this whole idea about like um, just this moment. How do you modernize it? And then. We did a, a bunch of songs together, and it was super easy because it was just. Sometimes you get references in their production and and uh, lyric melody, so it was Lynn drums and it was Juno six arps and it was uh, Moog bass. It was, there's specific things that were that DNA, and it was saying things that were super grand and having these huge choruses like out of the woods where you could just repeat it and sing it over and over, and then verses. Springsteen says uh, the chorus is uh, gospel, the verse is blues. I love that because the chorus is for everyone. That's I want to get better. 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 It could be like I want to get better at basketball. I want to get better at being less depressed. It could be anything. Everyone wants to get better. If your family was all murdered or if you stub your toe, 
Still want to get better. You have that feeling. <laughs> and so then the you best example. You are darker than Ross. Yes. Um, yeah, kill yourself was good. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the biggest ins- inspiration, uh, uh, and you, know, you know the band The Mountain Goats? You've never heard of them? Yeah, I'm not trying to do a thing where I like name an obscure band. Like I don't think it's cool to like. It's just they happen to be obscure. <laughs> they have a song, and the lyric in the chorus is, "I'm going to make it through this year if it kills me." That's a great song. Yeah, when I said that, there's not one person in this room who wasn't like, "Yep, right, yeah. I'm going to make it through this year if it kills me." If if they're here, they're a robot. Um, and then the verse is about alcoholism, his stepfather beating him, all these things that I've never experienced. Right, but the song means the world to me because. That's how I feel. So that's how, you know, are we out of the woods yet? Um, brave, I want to see you be brave. The song was about her friend coming out of the closet. Um, I want to get better. Like these songs that you, I, I feel very connected to just tying a song up in the chorus and then having the verse be so absurdly personal that no one else could have written it. Like it, literally it, talking. It explains why those, I mean, I, Jen and I were yeah, talking exactly. the other day about how your songs, maybe more so than anyone that I know, manage to seem to fit a lot of different scenes because they're really positive in the course or seemingly positive until you listen and you're like, wow, that's really deep that Brave is actually... I mean, it was used in a lot of contexts outside of coming out of the closet. It was a Microsoft commercial. You know, it's yeah, the idea... Yeah, I want idea, that. I want it yeah. to be forever. I grew up in the 90s, probably like you were popular music. You know, when I said all that shit about radio, that was later. Sure. Early 90s, you know, I turned on the radio and I heard the best songs that have ever been written. Still. You yeah. know, Dan was a part of that. It's so cool. But um, <laughs> it's amazing. You know, yeah. seriously, that, that moment, it wasn't because I was younger. It was because it, it was cause better. fucking incredible. <laughs> yeah, really, you know, you would way. hear yeah. Smashing Pumpkins and you, into Snoop Dogg on pop radio, into Pearl Jam, yeah. into Semisonic, into uh, the Indigo Girls were on pop radio, yeah. Toad the Wet Sprocket. Natalie Imbruglia, um, Melissa Etheridge. Like, shit made no sense. Yeah. I actually think we're heading closer towards that because you see radio, like, no one knows what's going on. Well, it's because, you know. I mean, well, right now there aren't aisles in stores. So, you know, we grew up we grew up in a, in a place where um, at least if you go just after closing time in the sort of, uh, sorry, Fred Durst, but the Limp Bizkit era. That's when the world died. You know, it's yeah. like... <laughs> No, that's when it got. That's when it got cynical. It became. It came back. back. But that's when. That's when we split off into indie and pop. That's when. Because you remember that was the moment. No offense to that kind of music, but I was so personally um, upset by what was happening in the mainstream that I, I like adopted this. What later turned into Strokes culture in the early two thousands of like fuck it, like like I'm in an indie band. I hate everything. I'm cynical. I'll never be on the radio. Major labels are sellouts. Like, I don't know what a publisher is even at this point in my life. Um, you know, and then it, it sort of came back around. But that, uh, those of us who grew up in this amazing moment, and I think we're a similar age, we have this, like, hope yeah. where it's like, oh, the mainstream can be incredible. Yeah. You know this feeling. Well, that was like, like, that was the time when Ben Folds would have a huge hit. And yeah. it was like, oh, this is so, the world is so great. Songs. But the, it, it actually didn't last. It didn't. But when it, cause yeah. because the hit. Because if, if, CDs if, were making a lot of money. And so it made sense to homogenize. I think when there's that kind of money, they all there there becomes a feeding frenzy of we need we need boy bands. We need, you know, hard rock. And the aisles become really strict. And radio becomes really strict. Like, remember? And the art art goes away. And it helps that now there's a playlist of just the top 50 songs. And whether, I don't know what playlist this is, but if it's Let It Go, going into, you know, One Dance or whatever, 
whatever. Who today's hits play. Well, the funny thing is, I spoke to somebody today, and you talk about formats. I mean, I I grew up listening to BBC radio, and they they would play the Beatles, then Muddy Waters, then, you know, Perry Como, then the Stones. Then, you know, I mean, it was like, it was, it was very broad and all over the place. And, and I was saying with playlisting now, and like the hope is that, you know, whether it's like if you asked everybody, the songwriter up here, you know, with your podcast that you're doing, let's make a playlist of the songs that the songwriters wrote. Let's make a playlist of the songs that inspired the writers. And then I spoke to one of the the IPs today, and they said, yeah, well, the playlisting thing is we still want it to have some kind of format. And and I I was really disappointed that they said that. They, They still want to try and make you as the listener be driven down a lane. And I think that's wrong. I mean, I personally think it's wrong. I think, you know, there's so much great music and diversity. I mean, don't, I mean, you're putting everybody in a box. Sure. And it's boring as fuck. You know, we have a, we have, <laughs> we have a song, um, Broccoli with Drum and Little Yachty. And uh, when I first heard that song, it just made no sense at all to me. Like, some, what this, about it made no sense? Well, there's a feature. <laughs> There's a five broccoli. things in a row. There's, no, there's like a feature in the great. first verse, and he's not in the first verse, and then he's in the rest of the song. And it's one of those things that a label would never... We, you know, it happened because it's of the way it is now. They just put it out and let people decide. And now it that's, sounds that's perfect. That's a song with like four different aisles of the supermarket in one song. Yeah, and so, right. You know, exactly. in a great because way. Really well put. Yeah. yeah. So... <laughs> It's so good. That's a metaphor. That's exactly what I've been thinking. I get it. They don't get it. Too many of them. But maybe that's what's good about maybe that's what's good about now is that you know that song didn't have to get through the major label system in any way. It would never have worked. It just they put it out. They were brave and threw it out there. People like it. Now the label can get behind it. It So brave. Yeah. That was their idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's about broccoli. It's so but brave. They were listening to Sarah Burrell. But it's creative. Like, I need something. Different. Broccoli. Broccoli. <laughs> but you brave, have to. Eat broccoli. What, like what, what, a, what a great publisher could do or, or people that are around you is um, have an actual opinion. That's the sickness of the music business is people with no opinion. The easiest way to keep your job at a label um, is to have no opinion. But the Not easiest way chances. to do something great is to have an opinion. You might get fired or you might run the label one day. Or a publisher. You know, there's so many people that just don't want to go on record because if it works, they want the credit. And if it doesn't work, they don't want to, they, they want it off them. But it's like, you just, artists can't function in writers without opinions. I love it. You know, I'm surrounded by people like Jen and my manager who will say like, this is it. This is it. This sucks. This is not. And, and then I have the ability to listen in and have my own opinion. And it's a culture where people have a thought and they're not just, it's a smash. You know, that is, like, right. the most... I mean, I guess people don't really say that that much anymore, but, like... No, no but the do. guy, the guy who has... They still say it? Opinion, they still say it. It's, you know, it's, you don't want the A&R guy who likes everything you do. You want the guy who likes nothing you do and asks you to keep sending that, stuff. I love Jen because she was interested in fun when it was worthless to a publisher. Right. So I, that, that's, a, that's just a fact of our relationship. Yeah. Separately from that... I, I liked to, you when fun was worthless also. Yeah, but, but that's it's nice record. because you know, oh, she liked the first record that couldn't have made her money at her company, couldn't have made her right. like, exciting to, 
like it, it was just a fan thing. Yeah. And so I thought, right. okay, she gets the songs. And then if we can do this together, and if we think these songs and this style of work is great and can reach a lot of people, that's awesome. But I mean, how sick you, you experience all the time, people with no opinion. Yeah. They, you know, everyone on the stage has had the experience. My least favorite thing that ever happens in music is when you're playing something to a group of people and they're all looking around and you're like, just someone just say yeah. what you think. Just well, that's you can love it or hate it. Like, cause that's, it's just for the people. They like it right. or they don't. And we, we try to, you know, this is what's happening on radio streaming, blah, blah. We try to figure everything out. But it's like, when you hear a song, do you like it or you don't? Do you want to hear it again? Did you spend a hundred thousand dollars in two years working on this version of the production and you still listen to the demo? Right. Without the mm-hmm. demo. It's so easy to say. It's so hard to do. You can, publishers can, run through that too. Oh yeah. Can I ahead. ask you a question of the publishers? Yeah, yeah. Can I tell a really short story and then ask? I would. I would prefer that. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to bogart the process, but I just I had an interesting drive here with Kenny and my wife, uh, and uh, I I got my phone magically hooked up to my car, so it played in the car, which was already amazing, and I played Kenny four new songs. One from today and one from yesterday and one that I hadn't heard yet from an artist that I'm working with who lives in uh, Oakland and one from a couple weeks ago. And like I'm really prolific and a lot of us, I'm sure everybody here is really prolific. And um, we listened to these songs and I just, when when I played Kenny, essentially, uh, the fourth song, I just was like, shit, how do you deal with this? Because it's an onslaught. Like it can't be, what are you listening to? Like 25, 30 new songs a day? You know, it's cause it's not just me, obviously like overloading. It's just you. Dan. No, no, I know. I know it is. But you know what I mean? Like, can, can you guys address that? Just like, how do you deal with the fact that you're listening to like so just much stuff? Your volume. And yeah. Having, and like you have so st- many different writers and each one sending. I want their, you to listen to my 10 yeah, songs. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm I maybe in a different position than maybe some other people, but I, I've been fortunate that I do have maybe like five key writers that I deal with pretty regularly. So the volume's not too too crazy, but I think I think even with five people, that's still too many people. That's still a lot of people. But um, in some ways, it's kind of good because y- y- the songs that you love they hit you almost immediately. So you you kind of at least for me like. I can kind of know listening through a song like, okay, I like this, but I, I don't, it's not connecting with me or, you know, and, and I can kind of move through them that way. And then when I do hear something that I love, I, I'm like a repeat listener. I'll listen to it like 50 times, you know, and, and that's sort of the sign that I am super psyched on something. But And, and you're right, not in that something is a perfect hit yeah. that researches perfectly, but when you do hear a lot of songs or at least, you know, I'm you you say this is special. It ends up being special in some yeah. way. Yeah, like there's definitely times when like there's been songs that Jack has sent to me. Like Brave's a good example. Of, like hearing that song for the first time, and it's like, oh, this is this is like the most special song. Everything is right about this song. Like everything works. Everything Sarah's saying works. Every how she's singing it works. How you guys wrote the melodies. It just like it doesn't. It didn't. It really didn't change. It didn't change one bit. No. Yeah. You know, and but you're the, and hearing the same, that after, on a day when you've listened to like twelve other yeah. songs. You know, yeah, you'd like, and it's exciting because some days you listen to twenty songs and you don't hear anything that's special because it's like it's hard to write a special. Do you song. ever like hear a song for the first time when you've heard twenty songs that day, 
And then like, because I know that I've sent things to people and like I don't get a response or they don't like it. I'm like, I really feel like there's something special about this. And then I'll send it again and they still want, and then like one day someone will be like, this is great. And I'm like, well, okay. So <laughs> yeah, it, your state of mind is going to yeah. affect it. So we and listen like, every and like, day. Do you, do you ever like, are you ever like, wow, how did I miss that? Or are you ever like, or something will blow up that you passed on where you're like, oh, I didn't like it. And then it blows up and you're like. Or, or it comes on your random iTunes and uh-huh. you go, fuck, that song's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also like, so, you know, our company and I'm sure everyone's similar. We have people, I'm surrounded with people that are, you know, I think are experts at different styles of music so sometimes it'll be somebody who works with me maria ashley markel hannah somebody connor will play a song and say you got to hear this song or i'll hear it and go i think this is fucking great and i'll ask someone else to listen to it and we kind of get a little bit of a group Mm -hmm. like let's but but when we sit in it we sit every week twice a week and listen as a group and we're just like this waiting to hear something to just you know, I mean, we're all inspired by great songs. So, yeah, I, I think I think Scott's right. I think Jen's right too. I mean, we we all work with a team of people, and yes, you do miss stuff. Yes, you get an immediate visceral feeling, um, uh, and it's part of the gig. It's why we do what we do. And uh, there's there's actually no creative rule book for us either. It's just that we're we're all fans. And, um, you know, I mean, and again, it's, it's, we, we are all fortunate that we, we work with a, another great group of people on our side of the fence and we share and we, we support each other and thank God we don't all have the same taste, you know, uh, but that's, that's a gig. When you guys as a writer, when you guys, I don't know if you guys have, I don't really get writer's block cause I do it every day and whether it's good or not is a whole other conversation, but I certainly can write every day. You know, when you guys go through sort of the down parts, you know, there it's, it's impossible to follow, you know, you're not writing someone like you every day, even if you'd like to, you're not writing California. My mind, I am. You're not doing some nice. Yeah. Right. You think you, yeah, for sure. I've done it again. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I, in a session, you're always like, oh, man, I love this. I love this. This is really good. I, I just heard one back the other day. Chorus is pretty good. Verse, all right, pre-chorus could just bury it. I mean, it's just the worst thing. But in the moment, I was like, nah, man, that's a good choice. Let's go with that. That thing's huge. And I'm thinking, like, it's a lottery ticket. I just scratched off a winner, you know? It's a little weird. It is a little bit of a lottery. I mean, I think we it's a controlled lottery, but, you know... You think you know, but... It's so funny. Songs can change for me depending on who I'm playing it for. They sound completely different when someone is there listening to it than when I'm by myself or when it's someone else listening. Um, and as far as writer's block goes, I something a big lesson I've learned just in this past year is um, that overwriting is so, so bad for me. And taking time off is like should be a requirement of the job because yeah i can write a song every day i'll never be able to go in a room and be like oh there's just i can't think of any words or melodies like i can always write a song but do i give a shit and is anyone else gonna and like what makes that special when you're writing every day it's hard to make that song 
pop out, you know, and and we have a good gauge on whether it's like actually a good song. And still our batting average isn't amazing. Yeah, but yeah. everybody needs a holiday. Right. Well, yeah, the sweet the Swedes take off two months every summer, summer. and or, or or three months, and the, the Norwegians they take yeah, off like a couple months, Italian and we're all fucking working system. every day. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> the American ethic. It's true. I think that a lot of things are great that when when we think they're great, and then it's just whether they get married correctly with. Like you know, when when you sing a melody and you think it's great, I really think it's great a lot of the time. But you know, for it to get connected with the perfect lyric and the perfect production, like how many times have right, exactly, you know, had yeah, a song and you're yeah. like, "This is cool," and then the way it's produced, it just comes to life. Like there's so many factors, and I really think that's what's so terrifying about this kind of work is um, there's there's no way of doing it. You know, you you uh, you know, everyone here has worked on a song for four months, six months, eight months, two years at some point in your life, and then you know, had an idea one morning in 10 minutes that was better than that entire thing. You don't know when it comes and why it comes and you don't know what two things, how many times have you sewed something together that had nothing to do with each other and then it happens. I do think that they're all, I think I think that you get to a point where you know what's interesting and then you just do it forever and that's why it's hard to take time off because um, it can happen at any point. So if you, you didn't go know. to the studio this day, you know, I was working with someone there's three people recently we were working together and one person got very sick and canceled and i was like great i'll take the day off and i called the other person i was like do you want to just like go in for an hour and we went in and we wrote a song this is recently that that is without a doubt one of the most important songs to me ever i don't know if it'll mean that way for my career personally it absolutely is what the fuck what if i didn't go in that day what days did That's I not go dope. in and what did I miss out on? That that drives you crazy. The FOMO. You're, the FOMO no, Jack, will Jack fuck you up. literally will only stop if he's like in the hospital or like he No, he's ready he's in the like, hospital. He loves that. He probably That's is good. writing in the hospital, but, well, then you have to get better. but like he gets better. <laughs> okay, keep going. Keep going. Way to go. Sorry. Cross I was calling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's but that's that's a burden that I think is part of it. You know, so why are we so lucky that we get to write songs and expect people to fuck money, pay for the song, you know, put their emotions into the song? It's a huge responsibility, right? So sometimes you have this feeling where like, well, the least I could do is ruin my life. And then sometimes you start ruining your life and your partner hates you or whatever it is. And you're like, no, there's a balance here. And by ruining my life, I'm not writing as good songs. So it's just for me, and I'm sure all you yeah. guys are really delicate thing and i think that you have to go a certain level hard at it and try to stay sane but doesn't that torture you like what if i didn't i have a i have a picture that i got in my mind first of all bonnie i like this thing about when you play the the song for someone like this happens to me where i'll play someone a song and before they can say anything i'll be like okay i know what to do (laughs) just playing it for you has solved all my problems and you don't have to (laughs) you don't have to say anything it's amazing and then the other thing I was going to say is like uh, I have this image that I got a bunch of years ago, and like five years ago, and it's kind of tortured me since. And I kind of wish I hadn't thought of it, but actually I'm going to tell you guys. So in a way, maybe that isn't so nice, but I, I'm not sure. Um, I suddenly thought of my creativity as this really nice fountain way in the back of my mind, like way in the back. It's this fountain that's always bubbling and there's always like beautiful kind of sparkly water coming out of it. And it's just peaceful and like it's always flowing. And then when I thought of that, I was so happy. And then I had the thing you're talking about, Jack. I realized like I should be back there at the fountain more. (laughs) 
Like, I, I need to go there all the time. I have FOMO about the back of my own mind. Like, when, I'm when, missing out on the chance of being when you in my own it, head. There's it's nothing weird. better, right? Like, when you're, when you're there. So how often, yeah, the how, best. how often do you it. have periods of time where you're really there? Because most of the time, you're here, and then every once in a while, you'll just be like, I'm in it. I'm doing it. Like, a few <laughs> days, and you're like, it all makes sense. Like, the past year, like, it, it all fucking makes sense right now. And you often do the best work in that moment. God forbid you're on vacation then. Yeah, the, be- the yeah, biggest like- <laughs> song I've, I've ever had at radio came from being kicked out of a studio, writing at a piano in, in the middle of a lobby, and having, in, in, I just happened to be recording, and 12 minutes into it, I was trying to write an Adele song, because she was, she had just, I just heard uh, Send My Love, and this was three years ago, and I'm trying to write this, and I get into it, and it's like this terrible emotive, like, crap, with really dark chords, and slowly falls into, like... Um, you know, Scott will, will make fun of me for it, but going into it, it's just saying like, I hear a knock on the door and the night begins. And I started and I just wrote my house as a ballad. And that's like, and it really was supposed to be like an Adele. Yeah, well, wow. I thought, like I totally was like, I totally missed the mark. <laughs> Adele in Florida have a lot of, like, it's I ridiculous. Actually, I love the, the ballad then just speed it the fuck up. That's the whole age. Yeah, you do you that, yeah. you drop, yeah, yeah, you drop like... it down in auto-tune, you put four men on it, I sound identical to Flo Rida, and there you go. <laughs> We're all going to do that. thing to write, an up-tempo, Ross. Yeah, it is. All right, um, on that note. Uh, if you were to ask me, I would say, and I say this behind your backs, you know, uh, someone like you, Teenage Dream, and We Are Young, in my opinion, are three of the best songs ever written in my life. So, uh, as a fan more than a, a host, thank you guys for for coming. Thank you for listening to the first season of And The Writer Is. If you want to go back and listen to earlier episodes, they're still on iTunes, or you can look at our website, www.andthewriteris.com. And for more information for the second season, follow us on our socials, whether it's from Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Our handles are at And The Writer Is. Now, this next season coming up is going to be amazing, and it will be released this fall. So stay tuned, and on behalf of all the people involved with And The Writer Is, we thank you for sharing and we thank you for listening. Till next time, I'm your host, Ross Golan. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.